So just before I introduce Alistair, uh, J. John, who's a communicator, some of you will be aware of him, he wrote a book called uh, Jesus Christ the Truth, and he donated, he's my mentor, J. John, he's been my mentor for about 15 years, and he wrote this book, and he donated one to every delegate yesterday. So some was left behind because not everybody wanted to take a bag home with them. So there's some bags on the table out there with the book, Jesus Christ, the truth in that you can take away for free. And there's also some little notepads there that Mark Ritchie, who's part of that group with J. John, uh, paid for to be done for all the delicates as well. And there's also a little pen, Fix 22 pen. I've told the Jumping Jacks lot that they can take a load back to Glasgow, so you better get in there quick. <laughs> Isn't that right, Eric? <laughs> But yeah, so there'll be some left as well, so you can take one of those. So last year at Fix, we announced that we were going to be starting a programme as Proclaimed Trust called Your Story Reframed. And the idea was that we would get people together from all over the UK and we would train them how to tell their stories effectively. Because we've all got a story to tell. Your story isn't my story. Your story isn't my, uh, my. Your story isn't my story. Your story isn't. Let me do that again. Your story isn't my story. My story isn't your story. We've all got a story to tell. Our stories are unique to us. So we started this last year, uh, and one of the people on that was a guy called Alistair from Glasgow. So the program starts, we've got one starting again in December where we do some stuff on Zoom from on and there's three people involved with the training, myself, Alison Fenning and an author called John Phillips and he's very good at grammar so he's helping those that are not good with grammar, people like me and he, he, he's helped people you know, do work, stuff like that out. Uh, so we do some Zoom training and then we had an in-person event here six months after and in between the Zoom training and the in-person we... I've done personal Zooms with each of them, many times, some of them. And then they've, got, then they've turned up here and done it in person. Well, Alice is one of those. And, and since we've done that in person, I've had Alistair with me several times speaking in jails up in Scotland. And he spoke yesterday here at Fixed. So, obviously, I said to Cookie, let's keep him on to hear him, hear him tell his story with our lot. Nice one, mate. Come on. It was a Friday night, and I'm in the Gorbals on the south side of Glasgow. I'm with all my mates, and we're sitting in fat gym's house. We're all smoking weed and getting ready to go out. I just beat my stash and picked up gear. There was a Bob Malarica playing in the background. Said he was a buffalo soldier, dreadlock rasta. The room was filled with smoke. That sweet smell of weed was in there. Kipper was there, so was Big Tackleberry and McGinty. We used to call my mate Tackleberry after the guy in police academy. He was a big guy, about six foot three, and built at the side of a house. He was always talking about doing people in, stabbing someone or slashing someone with a big blade. He was the kind of guy who'd pull an axe out from his jacket and say, Right, lads, what do you think of this one? Yeah. Aye, Charlie, it's a belter. <laughs> Pretended not to call him Tackleberry to his face. Out of nowhere came a bang, bang, bang. The front door was put in. They're shouting coming from the hallway. His bodies are piling into the house. The room door burst open. And before I know it, I'm on the ground being handcuffed. I was then searched and a bag of pills were pulled from my pocket. I was charged with possession of intent to supply a class A drug. Let me rewind back to the beginning. I was born on the south side of Glasgow. 
And I was brought up in a loving home and a loving family. But I knew right from wrong. Although my childhood could probably be described as challenging. My dad owned scrapyards in the East End of Glasgow. And he was a bit of a rogue. I remember from an early age, he used to bring guns and knives into the house. He even had a set of knuckle dusters that had been made especially for him. The deserated edges went along the front. I remember I used to sit and play with him as a wee boy, not really knowing what they were for. He also liked to drink. He was an alcoholic. My mum, she was the opposite of him. She was a nurse and worked in Victoria Infirmary in Glasgow. She was a gentle, kind and caring woman. And when I was about five, she divorced my dad. She just couldn't take any more of his behaviour. And being so young, I couldn't understand what was happening, why my dad was leaving us. It really affected me later in life, because I used to think that the people who loved me most were going to leave me. I never seemed to do well in school. My report card was always the same, could do better, easily distracted. It was never a good report card. I never felt good at anything. I was even told there was a waste of space and I'd never amount to anything in life. I'd been written off at such a young age. And I believed that report card for most of my life. I left school with next to no qualifications. In fact, I'm surprised I could read or write for all the time that I was there. I always seemed to fall in with the wrong crowd. And from an early age, I was involved in gangs, going to football, drinking, fighting, and getting into crime. In 1987, the rave scene had started. I knew I'm taking ecstasy, speed, acid, coke, all so-called party drugs. I found something I was good at. Good at getting out my nut. I then went on to do the things I said I would never do. I smoked some hair with fat gym, even though I knew people got addicted and died. But I thought, that'll no happen to me. I'm not stupid enough to become an addict. I'm now doing more crime to feed my habit. I'm constantly in and out of jail. I then went on to do the things I said I would never, 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 never do. I started injecting heroin. My life was spiralling out of control. I even became homeless. My mental health shot to bits. And now I'm hearing voices in my head. To be honest, most of the time I just wanted to die. And to end it all. Hated myself. Hated the person I'd become. My family didn't want to know me anymore. Hated enough. I put them through hell. I'd been like a tornado going through their lives, causing destruction wherever I went. I would lie to them. I'd steal from them. Cause them misery. More than anything, I stole their peace. My mum used to say to me that she was waiting for a phone call from the police. To say I'd been found dead up a close. I remember she used to say to me, son, this is why I see you happy and settle down. That's all she ever wanted for me, is to be happy. I'm out scoring one night. And I met this guy called Patino Rulliglin. We ended up back at his house and we're taking heroin and smoking crack. One of the first things I noticed when I went into his house was a table that sat in the corner of the room beneath a window. And on top of the table sitting in the middle was a Bible. And at the time, I thought, 
must be man of the crackpots. <laughs> the next day, Patino had to go to work. And he said I could hang about and wait for him, or I could head off. So after he left, I went out and bought a bag of heroin. And I'm back at his house. I'm drinking a coffee, reading the paper, and taking this bag of heroin. And I looked up from the paper, and straight over at this Bible. And there was like a voice in my head saying, go and pick it up. And I'm thinking, picking up, hang up. And again, I'm drawn to this Bible. And again, it was like a voice in my head saying, go and pick it up. And I'm thinking, absolutely no way am I picking that up. And I wrestled with this thought. And eventually I gave in. And I went over and I picked it up. And I could have opened it anywhere. And I opened it in the book of Proverbs. And this is when I had the most profound moment of my life. It was as though God was speaking directly to me, saying, this is what's happening to you. This is why it's happening to you. And at this point, I freaked out and I slammed it shut. But then it was like a voice in my head again saying, I can help you. From that moment on, I couldn't stop thinking about God. And I began to wonder if there was a God, whether he might just help somebody like me. So at the time, I didn't know any Christians. But when I thought about them, I thought, I saw that happy clapper mob. What are they all so happy about? <laughs> then one day I seen a guy helping somebody and I thought, he might be a Christian. He was doing a good deed. So I said, excuse me, are you a Christian? He said, no. <laughs> I said, do you know any? It's a wee bit like trying to score drugs. This time I'm trying to find somebody who's got God. Hear me, nobody's got God. <laughs> it turns out his next door neighbour was a born again Christian. I asked if I could meet him. I had so many questions to ask. I met his neighbour and he invited me to church that Sunday. And I remember going along and feeling so uncomfortable. Everybody looked so happy. They were all singing and clapping, had their hands in the air. And they all looked like their perfect life. And here was me by the hood, in the wee church. But then the pastor spoke about God in a way I'd never heard before. How was my father in heaven? He loved me so much. He was desperate to have an intimate relationship with me. He'd never leave me, nor forsake me. He had a plan for my life. He also said God could heal and restore me. And at the end, the pastor asked if anybody wanted that kind of relationship with God. And my hands shut up without even thinking about it. I said, me, I do. I want that kind of relationship with God. Really? I then said a prayer, and I gave my life then and there to God, and I asked him to save me. Really? A couple of months later, I flushed my heroin, methadone, and Valium down the toilet. I'd been praying to God and asking him to prove he was real in my life. And then when I came off all the drugs, I had no withdrawals. I slept every night. Whereas my experience before was, I used to go through severe withdrawals. I remember being in jail back in the day when there was no detoxes. I'd have pains in my legs, cramps in my stomach, hot and cold sweats, not sleeping for weeks at a time. But then this time, nothing. And for the first time in years, I had peace. The voices had gone too. It's as though God was saying to me, do you believe me now? I began to volunteer in church. 
And I went back into education. And I found out I wasn't an idiot. I actually had a brain. I went on to study accounting. And I even gained a professional qualification. Today, I work as an accountant in a housing association. I've more accountancy business. I'm married to most amazing, beautiful, kind women. God gave me his best. He gave me the desires of my heart. And he's been so good to me over the years. I've had promotions at work. I'm on the management committee for another housing association. I'm a treasurer for a charity that helps people with addictions and homelessness. I used to think that good things will happen to everybody else. But they'll never happen for me. Because of all the bad stuff I've done, which was a lot, now good things always seem to happen. When I gave my life to God, he started the process of rebuilding it. He gave me a new report card. He said I'm loved, accepted, forgiven, prosperous. Yeah. He turned my mess into a message. Let me take you back to Fat Jim's house. Big tackle berries just taking a toke of a joint. The room's filled with smoke. That sweet smell of weed is in the air. We're all laughing just before the door got put in. I made decisions then that led me to a life of crime and addiction. I wanted to fit in and be part of the gang. But then somebody told me about a man who could save my life. The Bob Marley record's still playing in the background. Now, though, he's playing a redemption song. Because these songs are freedom. It's all I ever have is a redemption song. My name's Alistair McPhee. Thanks for listening. So when we did our first FITS conference 11 years ago, the idea was is to bring different organisations together. It's not about Proclaim Trust. It's not about me. It's about bringing different organisations together that Proclaim Trust and I'm connected to. Because I work with a lot of organisations and a lot of churches with what I do throughout the UK as we've got some people from we get more people from Scotland here than we do England by the way on, on a Saturday so it, the idea of our first fixed conference was to bring all these different organisations together people who are doing different kinds of work in different places throughout the UK and it's great because it's everybody's represented you know you get your, your, your you know victory outreach and your team challenge but there's other organisations like we just talked, Jumping Jacks, uh, which is a great setup there in Merrill, Glasgow. So a couple of years ago, I came across Emma Heath, Star Recovery. And what I found about Emma is she's doing something a little bit different than a lot of the others, which is great. So I invited her last year to come and tell a story at Fix, and she did. And she's from Bournemouth, and that's where her base is. But she's growing this ministry that she's set up, like, nationally. And she's doing, started to do some stuff overseas as well. And I don't want to steal her thunder in case she wants to mention it. But from my perspective on what she's doing, she's training the local church to work with people in recovery. So it's not a rehab you go to. She goes to places and trains people like us. How do we deal? How do we work with people in recovery? Because we're a tricky bunch. When we talk about addiction, it can be a tricky, tricky group of people to work with, for sure. I mean, we had one guy who passed out yesterday. And we had to get the paramedics out because he'd been drinking and all of that. But, uh, so, Emma, come on, love. Do your stuff. Emma E, thank you very much. Thank you. Wow. Um, right, let me get sorted.
It is so good to be here. I mean that. And um, let's put a timer on for 25 minutes so I don't go over. Um, okay, so thank you, Barry, for the amazing introduction. Thank you for inviting me. And I know that this church is a heart for people in addiction. I saw it firsthand yesterday, and it was stunning. I'll be honest, just using this beautiful venue bringing people from all over the country. And Barry, yes, you are right. There's a lot of Scottish people that turn up. And where I'm from the South Coast, I find the language barrier quite difficult. Um, you know, and honestly, it takes me like a few moments to start understanding what you were saying earlier, Alistair. And like, you know, it's, um, I even, when I arrived up here on Friday evening, I drove up, it took a ridiculous amount of time to drive from Bournemouth. It took actually eight hours. And I was like, oh my gosh, and I got to my hotel and I literally um, thought, I'm going to have, and this is how God works, isn't it? We want one thing and he does a complete different thing, which is always better for us than what we expect. And I literally arrived at this hotel and it had a little swimming pool and I thought, I'm just going to go into the swimming pool. I'm going to chill out for half an hour, get an early night ready for speaking at the fixed conference yesterday. And I got to the hotel and I went down into the pool and there was this, I could hear the noise before I even got to the pool. And it was like this really loud voices and, and you know, I can't do a Scottish accent, but there were nine Scottish people in the swimming pool uh, playing volleyball. They didn't have a net, so it was all imaginary volleyball and there was a lot of like conflict of how high the net was. And you should have seen it. And I, lo I looked and my, my first thought was, oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> This is going to spoil my peace. And I just thought, no, no. And this is like, I was like, God, what am I going to do? And I have conversations with God all the time about anything and everything, not just on a Sunday, you know. And I was like, what should I do? And I felt this nudge of just do it anyway. And I literally was like, okay. So I slunk into the pool and sat at the edge. And, um, and then I looked at these people. And the beautiful thing was, they were all getting on so well, but you could tell they were all of different ages, different backgrounds, different personalities. And I thought, that's not what normally happens in society. But there's something stunning when a group of people in recovery come together because they share that commonality of addiction, that something that has absolutely brought them to the ends of the road and they've come back from it. And I just had this feeling that they were all together in recovery. And I spoke to one girl and she said, yes, you know, um, we're here for the fixed conference. And then they recognized my face and then they realized I was speaking and I ended up playing imaginary volleyball with them. <laughs> and, um, and, then, and then I was about to get out of the pool and then they just said, can we pray for you? for tomorrow and I was just like ah oh, and it was exactly what I needed and what I love and this you know I've gone a little off piece because I think it's really important what I asked for when I went was completely different and I got something way more and I went to bed that night feeling so topped up and the Scottish people are amazing so it was just a really great start to a great conference and yesterday in that day and you know I I saw some stunning things happen that are only God. There was a gentleman sat over there. He came over and spoke to me at one point and said, I want to tell you what's just happened. And again, we were all coming together for the purpose of either people in addiction, in recovery, or working in the field, or just at a heart. People came together. So my automatic perception is that People are just going to get healed from addiction or something similar. But no, this guy came and he had a spinal problem that he'd had for like seven or eight years. 
And he literally came over without his crutches and said, you know, by the grace of God, I've been healed today. And it was things like that, you know. I saw, I saw so many miracles happen in this room yesterday. And that is because people came together. They trusted unwaveringly that God would do something in their lives. And it happened. Um, so I'm going to just tell you a little bit about me. Just so you get a little, you know, picture about who I am. Um, I... I'm a very spontaneous person. I'm a sort of person that you tell me one thing, I do it, and then I want something more. But society tells us to be that way today. You know, we are programmed to be actually addicted to things. When you look at Facebook and all the things that we are feeding into us, that's what society is telling us. But it's also telling us that we're not content with what we have. You know, social media and the way the world is, is telling us that one thing, we need something more. But I also have that character in me. And instead of shying away from that, I try and use it for good today. Um, but just so you know a little bit about me, I, I love adrenaline. Um, and I'll show you a few pictures of some of the things I've done, which is quite interesting. I decided I would do a skydive, um, which was quite fun. Um, I did it with a Christian charity down in Bournemouth. And literally, I, I did that. And the funny thing was, at the end, when we got to the bottom, I was the last one out. I saw my colleagues in the distance, you know, praying. I thought they were praying. And I ran over to them, and I was like, yes, I'm going to pray with them. And I was all happy, and I just like, ah! And I, I went down to pray with them like this. And then I realized they weren't praying, they were being sick, you know. Um, but that wasn't enough for me. I'd done this skydive, and then I was like, what can I do next? And living in Bournemouth, we have an amazing air show. I decided I would do a wing walk. That's me on the plane. Um, you know, and not only did I do that, I roped in the mayor of Bournemouth. And I've got a cheeky side, which I used to always use to feed my addiction. I can now channel that into some fun things and good things. And the mayor of Bournemouth did it with me. Um, and then that wasn't enough. So recently, I flew a plane as well. Um, which was quite fun. I must admit, it was scary. You know that minute that you are completely at the mercy of something else? You know, and it reminds me of actually giving God everything today, giving him everything, and sometimes that is quite scary. That's been my experience. You know, addiction for me was an element of control, and today it's about giving over control to him, and that has been the most amazing part of my journey. So like I said, we live in this instant gratification culture, and that's good in some ways, but it can also be really destructive in others. And um, I've wanted to talk to us today, a verse that keeps coming to mind is in Matthew about when Peter steps out of the boat to Jesus. And if, if you don't know this story, I'm going to read it out to you, because it is, I mean, it's a very well-known verse, like verses, but I find it fascinating. There's a few bits in there I'm going to pick up on. So let's read this. It says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up to the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When his disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, tell me to come to you on the water. 
Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. I mean, this is a massive verse, yet I do believe it applies to all of us today, because daily we are called to step out in faith. But how many times does our faith waver? And in those times, there's been so many times where I put my, what I believe, my utmost trust in God, but then say, well, why didn't that happen? Or I get scared, and I retreat back to self and my own feelings. So that is such a pattern that happens for me. But that is natural, we're human beings, you know, and God is a forgiving, loving God. You know, how many times do we just need that little touch of him when we reach out our hands? And that's been my experience over my whole life. If I look back at all the things that have happened through my life, I mean, I was brought up in an absolutely beautiful, loving Christian home. And I, you know, but there were times that I pulled so away from God. And I'll be honest, addiction, which for me began at the age of 11, I believe it was probably bubbling away before then. But at the age of 11, I fell into the trap of eating disorders. And by the time of 13, I found alcohol, um, which went all the way up to the age of 28, when I first you know, got into recovery 16 years ago. But for me, the minute that addiction took hold... God seemed even more distant. It was like this big brick wall between me and God. But looking back, he was so there. Because there is no way that I, from the things that have happened, the car, the, you know, the car accidents, the way I drink myself stupid, um, you know, wake up in hospitals, or I've actually woken up in a country before, a different country, not knowing that how, even how I got there, in blackout. I mean, goodness, God was with me, but I didn't see it. And I wasn't having that living relationship which Jesus offers. And that's what, for me, was that breaks my heart more than anything. I've missed out on such a beautiful relationship with him for so long. But he's been there and carried me. And when I got into a rehab 16 years ago, I tried different ones before. But there was this one time I went to a rehab and it's... The irony is, my, my, I used to blame my parents for my addiction. Um, my mum is a pharmacist, retired pharmacist now, and my dad is a managing director for Guinness. So I always used to have this excuse, if you had the parents I had, no wonder you ended up like I did. And, um, and basically, I ended up at this rehab, and I remember, oh, it was quite funny actually, I'll tell you a little story. The first thing I remember was, I have a, ph- a phobia about cows, and... Um, and basically, I, if I'm drinking, I mess up my words and one eye goes in the opposite direction. So if you ever see me like that, just run a mile. I pr- you know, pray to God that will never happen and I believe it never will happen because I keep him at the centre of my life today. Um, but basically, I was messing up my words in this rehab while I was having a detox. And um, I, 
there was a cow field at the end of this rehab centre and I was looking out at this field all the time and I was like telling everybody I've got a phobia of cows, you know, and that was the most important thing to me. Not the fact that I had just got there because I drink two litres of vodka a day and almost dead. I was more worried about the fact there were cows in the field. This is the irrational mindset of when people are in recovery. It's not just all about the addiction, it's about everything. And basically, I was telling everyone I had this phobia of cows, but actually, because I was messing up my words, I was telling everyone I had a fetish for cows. So there's all these people in this rehab centre looking at me like I am really, really, really off-key. And then, thankfully, I was able to work out what I was saying and rectify that. But there's this thing as well, when you walk into a group of people, when you're first trying to get recovery... You feel so different, even though, like I said about what happened on Friday evening, you you end up becoming one. Um, You know, that actually happens. But anyway, so I ended up in this rehab, and when I prayed a prayer on the first night that my detox ended, God, if you can help me get through this, help me to help other people. And I didn't realize what a powerful prayer that was. And I parked it. You know, how many times do we say something and then it's parked and then a few years later or something, it's like, oh gosh, that happened. You know, that's how he works and it's in his timing, um, which is beautiful. Um, So that happened to me then. And then I had, it took step by step, getting into recovery, learning who I was again. You know, I didn't have a clue who Emma was anymore. I was a broken felt like a little girl of the age of 11, even though I was 28, because addiction just stripped to... Ooh, sorry. Is that all right? Are we back? No? Yeah. Cool. Okay. Addiction just stripped everything from me. If you'd have asked me what colour I liked, I didn't know. If you'd like, asked me what music I liked, I didn't know. If you asked me how my faith was, I'll be honest, I did not know. I really didn't know anything, but thankfully, for the grace of God, good people came alongside me, and they walked with me into a place of hope, into a place of freedom, and many of them talked about God in that, and I started to feel my relationship with him grow again, and that was beautiful, and yes, one of the greatest gifts of recovery is putting down, for me, the alcohol, but actually, the greatest gift for me was getting a living, breathing relationship with Jesus again. Because he will never leave us or forsake us. And that has been, you know, my experience. He has been with me through thick and thin. Um, I'll tell you a little bit. I mean, I know some of us were here yesterday at the Fixed Conference and know a lot about addiction. But there's many of us that don't. And, but we live in a culture, like I said, where addiction, and when I say addiction, I want to say destructive habits as well. What do we perceive of addiction? You know, for me, even having lived a whole life of addiction, pretty much, I still have preconceived ideas about what addiction is that are wrong. Um, You know, and what's the stereotypical view of people with addiction? I had the privilege, um, when I had had several years of recovery, I started helping my local church and running addiction courses. I went to see an addiction course running in London. And it's a course where they'd put men and women into separate groups, but you'd have a talk. And I got put in this women's group. And there were probably about 10 ladies in that group, all of them similar age to me, apart from one little old lady. And I thought she must have been someone's grandma that had come along just to support, because we're so about the family supporting, you know, because addiction affects so many people. 
And again, my, my preconception was wrong because we went round this group saying, what is, what's brought you here today? And everybody that was there, all the women were saying it was like crack cocaine, heroin, alcohol. And then it got to this little old lady. And I thought she was just going to pass. And she didn't. She said, oh, Emma, I've got a habit that's controlling my life. And I was like, hmm, interesting. And, um, and she said, yeah, it's the first thing I do in the morning. It's the last thing I do at night. I spend all my money on it. She'd been married to her husband for 50 years, and he was thinking of divorcing her because of it. By that point, I was literally out of my seat like, what is it? And she just looked at me, and the pain in her face reminded me of when I used to drink two litres of vodka a day and want to die. And she said, Emma, I'm addicted to cross-stitch. And I was like, cross-stitch? Isn't that like knitting? Like, my nan used to do that. And, um, and I laughed at her. I'll be honest, I went, yeah, really? And then I realised, like, looking at the pain in that woman's eyes, I realised it wasn't about the substance or the habit. It was about that deep-rooted pain where someone was doing something to numb them from reality. And I, there's, a, there's a statistic which, you know, it might challenge us all here today, but they say that between 80 and 90% of people have an addiction, habit, or compulsive behaviour that if they were free of, they would be happier. That's many of us here today. Many of us probably didn't think that the fixed conference could be for them. And my challenge is that actually there are probably things going on in our lives today that are gripping us that if we were free of we would be happier. So I'd like you to ponder that while I sort of, you know, wrap up in a minute. Um, and I'd love you to come forward today and have prayer for that. There is no shame in coming forward because we, like I say, we are, we are programmed to draw these things into our lives. Society tells us to hold on to things, to numb out the pain of life. Um, and I do feel there's an opportunity here today to address some of that. Um, so there's a little quote I want to show you about addiction, which I came across by um, a really good author called Anna. And it says that we live in a time of unprecedented access to high reward, high dopamine stimuli, drugs, food, news, gambling, shopping, gaming, messaging, sexting, tweeting. The smartphone is a modern-day hypodermic needle delivering digital dopamine 24-7 for a wired generation. We've all become vulnerable to compulsive overconsumption. I did a little survey and I said to some people, it was actually a group of 15 church leaders that I was speaking with, I asked them if I could take their mobile phones off them for the day. The horror on people's faces. I'll be honest, you know. Um, and out of that group of 15 church leaders, I also asked them, when I gave them that statistic of 80 to 90% of people having something that's gripping them in their life that if they were free of, they'd be happier, I said, part of the post-it note, all I want you to do is put a tick on it or a cross, a tick representing if you have something in your life that you wish you were free of. 14 out of 15 of them put a tick on that. One of them didn't even give the post-it note back. But, you know... <laughs> Um, most people have something in their lives and I want to just help us today to really challenge into that because there's no shame or, you know, in that. Um, and we can find freedom um, because I, even now, I'm in recovery and free of, a, you know, addiction. 
But I still have to be vigilant over that, you know. I ended up drinking again um, coming up to 11 years ago, and it's funny that the fixed conference has been going on for 11 years because it's almost the exact time that I've had this, this chunk of sobriety. And um, I basically... Um, you know, I ended up, like I say, I drank again because I took my eye off the ball. I turned away from God again. It was all about self. It was all about in Emma's strength. And actually, I needed him more than anything. Um, and I realized that. And actually, drinking again, it gave me a real, like, realization of where I need to put my trust and my faith in. And there was a time when I actually was a bit like Peter. And I'd taken my eyes off the ball and I doubted, and everything around me felt too much, but I returned to him and reached out my hands and said, help me, because I drank again. And in that two weeks of drinking, almost 11 years ago, I ended up in a police cell. I'd smashed my car. I was looking at a possible prison sentence for my second huge drink driving offence. Um, the things that happened, I'd broken my foot, all these things... And I was back to drinking neat vodka in just two weeks. And I ended up in this police cell. And there's a saying in um, uh, the big book of AA that says, a belly full of beer and a head full of recovery doesn't work. And that was my experience. And in that moment, I came out of that police cell. I reached out to people and I reconnected with God. And he has helped me so much. And I'll be honest, I want to share a story with you. Firstly, actually, I'm going, to t I'm going to leave that for a moment, but um, we haven't got very long. But if you want to find out how, if you're, I mean, you're all from this church, but if you know other churches that would like to be upskilled in addiction work, um, we offer a service through our charity Star, where Barry is our ambassador. And basically, you know, we help, you know, with very minimal cost, and most of it's free, help to help individuals and teams to upskill in knowledge, confidence, and collaboration in their community so that we as a church can step in and help people in addiction because statutory services are lessening. Funding is lessening for addiction. And I do believe that we live in a time where the church can raise up and step into this crisis area and help more people like me be set free. So my question today really is about where are we willing to step out of what our comfort zone is, that boat, that comfort zone, and actually say to Jesus, you know, please help me in any area of our life. And I'm not just talking about addiction, you know. And there's been so many times that I've done that. He's shown up and it has changed my whole walk with him. And there's, you know, I believe in like purpose through pain, we use a serenity prayer in the 12-step fellowship of recovery and it's, it's knowing hardship as a pathway to peace in that extended serenity prayer. And in that, through all the hard times, I have learnt more in all honesty than the good times. And that is so important for me to hold on to. And there was a time when I was six weeks back from that last drink and it's, it's good because my memory is not amazing, I'll be honest. But it was, the date was the 12th of the 12th of the 12th. <laughs> so I could always recite that one. And um, basically, like I said to you, like I said that my mum was a pharmacist. My mum is my best friend. And it really touched me when you were talking about your mum and what we put our families through. Because that's a part of what we do today in the charity I run is helping families and people affected by addiction. But, you know, we don't realise the collateral damage of what addiction does um, around us. And my mum 
has been to hell and back with me and my brother both being in addiction. There were times that she'd come to my flat when I lived in Wales and she would look through the letterbox and see me passed out on the floor. She would, like you said, you know, she'd, she was expecting a phone call to say that Emma hadn't made it. And I'll be honest, I didn't think, in all honesty, addiction took everything from me at that time. I didn't know if I'd get a day more in my life. But God had a very different story. And I, there's something happened when I was six weeks sober. And like I said, the 12th of the 12th of the 12th. I'd taken my mum away to Iceland. And I need to clarify, it's Iceland, the country, not the shop. Because <laughs> I did do this talk once, like, you know, talking about my, this story. And someone said, that's a really cheap amends, talk, taking your mum to a frozen food store. I'm not that cheap, honestly. I like bargains, but not that cheap. So I'd taken her to Iceland, and we'd come back to my um, flat in Bournemouth. And we were just talking the, the evening we got back about how beautiful it had been. We'd seen beautiful scenery. And I was like, you know what's beautiful? Even though I was six weeks sober, I was able to be a daughter again. I wasn't able to be present when I was drinking. I was a risk to myself and others. And in that moment, we were talking, and then we went to bed. And then we woke up in the morning in this flat I had at the time. And this is how God works, right? But we were chatting away, and then suddenly she just fell to the floor. I thought she'd fallen over. She hadn't. She'd had a sudden cardiac arrest in front of me. And literally, I realized what was going on. And in that moment, my first reaction, I ran and got... Well, first of all, I phoned the paramedics. And while I was trying to get through to them and everything and telling them what was going on, my friend was in a room next door. We were in this shared block at the time. It was her birthday. She should have been in work. It was the one day of the year outside of her working day that she was not at work that day. I grabbed her. She'd done CPR training two weeks before. Look at how God's joining the dots, you know. Um, she came running into the room with me. Um, this is my mom. She came running into the room with me and we started doing CPR on my mum, Lizzie. We're doing it, it was quite funny in a weird way. I was doing it to the Vinnie Jones Staying Alive soundtrack. She was doing it to Nelly the Elephant. Um, and that, you know, just... And, and basically, you could hear ribs cracking and all this stuff. And it took eight minutes for the paramedics to get to us. Not like it is today with the crisis we're in, um, you know, that takes a lot longer. Thank God it was then. Um, and they came and they just took over. And you know in that moment, there's a word we use in addiction a lot about being powerless. No one chooses to be an addict, you know, but some people are and that's the powerlessness. But in that moment, I was powerless and I had to stand back and watch what was going on in the, on, the, on my bedroom floor. And they took over and they're ripping off the clothes, they're cutting things off her, they're injecting her, the sounds, the smells, everything leaving the body... And then they, they were doing the you know, paddles, shocking her heart. And they did it about six or seven times. And, the, and in that moment, all I could do was stand back. And I started saying out loud the serenity prayer that I knew. And I was like, give me the courage, God. And my friend that was with me that had been doing CPR, she, the night before she'd been saying, I don't know if I believe in this God stuff. Yeah? And then she actually, from what happened, she saw how God just worked in that moment. The paramedic turned around to me and said, I'm so sorry, we can't do anymore. And then I pictured someone in the room with me. 
I know that was Jesus, without a doubt. And we all experience Jesus' presence in different ways. It could be a real spiritual feeling or a visualization, but I saw him there and then in that room. And this voice came out of me and it said, please, can you try one more time? And the paramedic looked at me and there was this connection and he, he turned around and apparently they do this anyway to help the family when they're losing someone, you know, to know they've done everything they can. And he tried one more time and he shot my mum's heart and I saw her start to come to life in that moment. And this for me, I tell you this story because not only do I in my daily walk in working in addiction, I see dead things come to life on a daily basis. But I also, in that moment, I only knew a fraction about CPR, but it was enough to step in and change the trajectory of something that could have been life-ending. And I believe we can all do that when it comes to folk in addiction. We can step in. All we need to know is a tiny, tiny bit of knowledge to help people today. Um, so that really is, you know, my truth and my story. Um, I hope that this has touched some of your hearts to think about how we perceive addiction differently. I want to be a Peter that gets it wrong sometimes, that sometimes my faith's not amazing, but ultimately I return to him, reach out my hand and say, come and help me. We are a culture that can be prone to addiction, but we don't need to be. We can help and support each other here today. So I'd love to pray for us all as we come to a close. And I think there's two groups of people I'd love to, to pray for, and you're very welcome. I would love it if you would like to come forward. There is no shame in this. Um, it's not going to label you as someone that's got an issue, but I do believe that there are things in our lives, not just addiction today, um, that basically we just need to step out. We need to just go, here's my hand again, Jesus. I want you to be the center. I want you to help me from that pit that I'm in. So let's pray together. Should we stand? If that's all right. Do whatever you want to do to receive him. I love to hold my hands out, but that's entirely up to you. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us a spirit of freedom that lives within us. Lord, you don't want us to be gripped by anything in our life today. Help us to focus on freedom. Help us to step out. Help us to put our hand out to you today and say, Lord, come into those areas in my life that are destructive, that are not needed, that are not of you, Lord. That could be anything, not just habits, behaviors. It could be anything. If we feel a stirring in our spirit that there's something we just want to get to the crux of and work on today that's, that's digging us down, that's help, making us feel like we are sinking. Lord, you are in the business of bringing people out. You are bringing, in the business of bringing people from the dead back to life. You help people from drowning. And this is what your promise is to us today. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are here. Your spirit is with us. And we just pray that today in Jesus' name. So if you... Oh, can you expect a clap? Yeah. Do you want people to come forward? Yeah. Yeah.
place this morning. There's a real sense of God speaking to us, speaking to me, speaking to you, I'm sure. And and we don't want to miss this moment. And I know time's gone on, um, but we're not going to leave this place. If you want to go and get your kids, that's absolutely fine. Obviously, we're aware the kids' workers are working really hard, but we're going to go back into worship and don't miss this opportunity. If there's things in your life, for me, at the moment, I'm just going to be really honest, it's worry. I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm got myself caught up in worry and that's not been an issue for me worrying about things things in my life that are out of my control and I'm going to get Emma to pray for me I'm not ashamed to say I need Jesus in my life I need to surrender that to Jesus I want to relinquish that control what is it in your life what is it in your life? Don't let's not miss this opportunity. Yesterday in here was so powerful. I was stood at the back. The presence of Jesus was just all over this place. You know, do you want to be touched by Jesus? Do you want Jesus to move in your life? Do you want to see Jesus like Emma talks about? Do you want to see Jesus? I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. You know, so as we go back into worship and the band are just going to play softly, come and get prayer. I'm first in the line. Come and get prayer and ask Jesus to touch you. What do you need to relinquish control of? Feel free to leave. Feel free to go and get a coffee. Feel free to get your kids, but don't miss this moment if that's you.